Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Matt Adams Podcast, brought to you semi-live here from the beautiful southeast side of Indianapolis, Indiana. It happens to be kind of a gloomy, rainy day around the city, so depending on when you listen to this, that may or may not be applicable. In previous shows, I've talked about writing, I've talked about Marvel, I've talked about Star Wars. So, in this particular episode, I'm going to talk about sports. If you're not a sports fan, this probably is not the episode for you. And I won't spend a lot of episodes talking about sports, but they are a big part of my life. If you listen to my streaming television episode, then you'll know that I'm a big sports fan, and that's a big consideration for me. So... I thought with this particular episode, I would just talk a little bit about some of the things going on in the sports world right now that are bugging me. I will call it sports rants number one. I'm basically going to cover three topics today. I'm going to talk about the Big Ten Tournament, the Indiana Pacers, and I'll address the Indianapolis Colts as well. There are many facets to cover with each one of those topics, so I'm planning on this being a little bit shorter of an episode. We probably won't hit 40 or 45 minutes, but who knows? If I get on a roll, maybe we will. First off, I'd like to talk about the Big Ten Tournament, which tipped off on February the 28th in New York City. That's right, they played the Big Ten Tournament at Madison Square Garden this year. Not Indianapolis, not Chicago, but New York City. The average Big Ten school is 630 miles away, with the closest school being Rutgers, and then Maryland and Penn State are also relatively close compared to some of the other schools. Let's take Nebraska, for instance. It's 1,185 miles away from New York City. Minneapolis is 1,016 miles away from New York City. As for a couple of your Indiana teams, Bloomington and West Lafayette, both about 670 miles away. I have no idea why the Big Ten Tournament is in New York. People in New York don't care about the Big Ten Conference. The tournament was in D.C. last year. It wasn't very well attended compared to ones that you've seen in Indy and Chicago, which are two cities who have sort of traded off back and forth hosting the tournament, and they both do a great job, and they're both centrally located for the majority of teams in the conference. I think it's safe to say the fan bases would prefer Indy or Chicago over New York, Those cities know the fan bases. They've done a great job. Indy's nice because everything's pretty much within easy walking distance. They usually assign a bar and a street to a particular team, and that's kind of where those fans are supposed to hang out and congregate. They don't have to, but it's a nice option there when they hold it in Indy. And Chicago's not a bad place either. I have not personally been in Chicago, but I've heard plenty of good things about it from those who've attended. New York just reeks of desperation. I I have no idea why the Big Ten really wanted to go there. I mean, I know the reason why. I think the reason they had it in Washington and the reason they had it in New York is because they probably made certain assurances to Rutgers and Maryland that they would have the tournament somewhat close in proximity to those schools, which Washington would be closest to Maryland, and of course Rutgers is just about 30 miles or so away from New York. 
The problem with appeasing those two schools, who I don't think really belong in the Big Ten in the first place, but that's a different broadcast. The problem is that to appease them, then you're pretty much screwing over the other teams in the conference. You're forcing these teams to go way, way far away. You're forcing fans to go to a city that's known for expensive hotel rooms, that's tough to get around compared to some other cities. It's going to be tough for fans. Let's say Iowa goes on a miracle run in the Big Ten tournament, and they're going to be in the semifinals. You could conceivably drive up to Chicago or Indy, snag a ticket, go to the games. You can't do that if you're having the tournament in New York. And I don't think people in New York care much about the Big Ten Conference. They don't have a team there. They don't have any vested interest in it. And the Big Ten really bent over backwards to make this happen. They had to squeeze their conference schedule down in order to play at Madison Square Garden because the Big East has always traditionally held the tournament there, and that's something that is expected to be held at Madison Square Garden. The Big Ten kind of had to move aside in order to allow the Big East to keep their tournament there, which is not a good look for the Big Ten. That meant changes to the conference basketball schedule. There was a strange span where Big Ten teams had conference games way early in the season, and then they took a break for four or five games for their non-conference schedule, and then went back into their conference schedule. It was very backwards. You know, you, you need those shakedown games to get yourself ready for the conference season. That's what the non-conference schedule is for, and I really think the the Big Ten screwed this one up. I follow IU, and I follow Purdue. I would call myself an IU fan. I like Purdue as well, but if those two teams are playing against each other, I'm pulling for the Hoosiers under most circumstances. There are IU fans who hate Purdue and want to see them destroyed. That's fine. I'm not one of those fans. There are also Purdue fans who would like Bloomington to be destroyed, and they enjoy it when they lose, and that's fine. I mean, I think it's one of those things, if you've gone to those schools, you're part of this rivalry, and you, you build sort of this animosity, and you, you buy into it. I didn't go to IU, although I grew up as an IU fan. I went to a small school, and I'm kind of non-denominational when it comes to teams in the state. I guess I've always felt that with Butler and Notre Dame and IU and Purdue and some of the other schools here in the state that they're all worth rooting for. Not all of them have a bunch of Indiana players on the team. They're local schools, and I like rooting for them. Plus, I've always felt there are greater evils out there in the college basketball world like Duke and Kentucky, just to name a couple. So I don't really buy into this, let's hate the other team just because they're our rival. Then again, I'm not a big fan of Hanover College, which is the chief rival for Franklin College, which is where I went to school. I don't have much love for Hanover, so I can understand where that uh, dislike comes from for those people who went to different schools who were rivals. So I, I, I get it. I just don't feel the same way because I don't have that strong connection 
to IU in Bloomington, or I don't have that strong connection to West Lafayette and Purdue. So I like to see the local teams do well, because when IU and Purdue and Butler and Notre Dame are good, it's better for the state of basketball here, and it's more fun and engaging to watch as a fan. The Big Ten Conference is at its best when IU and Purdue are competitive. But this condensed schedule for the Big Ten Conference really hurt Indiana because there was a span in which they played five games in 11 days. And that's very demanding for college basketball, especially for these college kids. They're not used to playing that high volume of games in that amount of time. And this was absolutely devastating for the Hoosiers because they lost four out of those five games, including the game to Illinois that they had no business losing. The Hoosiers don't have a shot at making the NCAA tournament. They'd have to have a miraculous run through the Big Ten tournament in order to make it there. But this stretch just killed them. Now, the Illinois game, they should have won. They didn't. And then the next three games, at home against Purdue, on the road against Ohio State, who was ranked at the time and is still ranked, at home against Michigan State, who is ranked, who was ranked at the time and was still ranked. They were in those games, really with the exception of the Ohio State game. They beat Rutgers pretty handily at the end of that stretch, but they lost four in a row, and that was pretty much IU's tournament hopes right there. If you play a lot of what-if games with IU, they're probably not going to be a tournament team anyway, but let's say that they'd managed to beat Illinois, and then they managed to pick off one of those ranked teams with Purdue, Ohio State, or Michigan State. Then they get a quality win, which they sorely needed. Now, it really didn't matter in the end because Indiana ended up losing to Nebraska, who's had a nice season, but it's a game the Hoosiers needed to win. And then they had an absolute heartbreaker against Ohio State at Bloomington that went into double overtime. They had the lead late. This guy hit pretty much a miracle shot, and they lost in double overtime. Now, let's say Indiana had beaten Nebraska and Ohio State. They'd won that Illinois game. They'd won one of those games against Purdue, Ohio State, or Michigan State. Their resume suddenly looks a whole lot better. And I'm not going to blame it all on the schedule. I'm just saying that's kind of what forcing the Big Ten tournament at Madison Square Garden ended up doing, at least in the case of the Hoosiers. Now, what was really strange is on December 2nd, they played Michigan. Then the December 4th, they played Iowa. And those were conference games. They counted as part of the conference season. And then they played Louisville, Notre Dame, Fort Wayne, Tennessee Tech, Youngstown State, and then it was back to the Big Ten where they had to go play at uh, Wisconsin. And there's no question IU's been in a rebuild this year. They lost their top scores from last year's team. They've got a new coach. There's just a lot going on there in Bloomington that probably means they weren't going to have a great season. And if they could have pulled a few of these games out, maybe things are a little bit different. But I just wanted to, to mention this as an illustration of sort of the insanity that had to go on in order for the Big Ten tournament to be played at Madison Square Garden. Traditionally, the Big Ten tournament is played the weekend before the weekend of Selection Sunday. The championship game for the conference shakes out 
and then it's pretty much time for the selection show for the NCAA tournament. And that game for the Big Ten is usually a big key in determining, you know, which team is going to be ranked where, where they're going to be seeded, if this game falls this way, is this game fall that way, is there a team in there that could burst somebody's bubble because they made a miracle run through the tournament. So it creates a little bit of excitement there when you get to Selection Sunday. But now IU and Purdue and the rest of the Big Ten are playing their conference tournament the week before Selection Sunday, so they're going to have a huge layoff before the tournament games start. And I I just don't think that's ideal. And they did it just for scheduling reasons so they could play the Big Ten tournament in New York, which, again, doesn't care about the Big Ten Conference or Big Ten basketball in general. I, I just don't think it was worth it. I don't think the conference thought it through, the conference leadership thought it through, the inconvenience and everything that had to that they had to go through in order to make this happen. And I hope they don't ever do it again. I heard the commissioner say that he regrets this decision, and I would sure hope so. I mean, you could have gotten tickets to go see one of those opening round games on Wednesday for $3 on the second-hand market because nobody cares. So just call me a bitter Midwestern sports fan and a Big Ten homer for that, but... I will accept that criticism, but I also think the Big Ten screwed up, and they know they screwed up, and I hope they don't do it again. Although, if I remember correctly, I read an article this week that they're considering holding the Big Ten tournament. They really want to play it in Philadelphia sometime, which is another venue that really makes zero sense. We'll talk a little bit more hoops now. This time we'll move to the pro game, the Indiana Pacers. Not a great week to talk about the Pacers Unfortunately, they were riding a win streak out of the All-Star break, and then they lost two straight games on the road to terrible teams between the Dallas Mavericks and the Atlanta Hawks, a team they beat handily just days before when they were home in the safe confines of Banker's Life Fieldhouse. They gave up 41 points in the fourth quarter to the Mavericks to lose that game. They were outscored 35-15 to in the third quarter against the Hawks. They had more than 20 turnovers in that game. I watched it. They came back. They got within a couple of points a couple of times, but each time Atlanta made a shot, when it came down to it, the Pacers got the ball with about 50 seconds left in the game, down by four points. They inbounded the ball to Bogdanovich. The ball got swatted away. It was originally ruled Indiana ball, but then upon review, it looked like the ball had been slapped away and then bounced off of Bogdanovich. So Atlanta got the ball back. That upset the whole flow of the end of the game as Indiana was planning it out. When you get down by 20 points in a game, which they did in the third quarter, I think they trailed by as many as 23 in that game against this terrible Hawks team. They didn't shoot well. They turned the ball over way too much. They didn't have any type of flow. But when you get down by 20 or 23 points, in order to get back into the game, you pretty much have to play perfectly in that fourth quarter. And to the Pacers' credit, they almost pulled it off. They really did. But that late turnover where it went off of Bogdanovich, and like I said, that just upset the whole strategy because the the Pacers are counting with about 49 seconds left. You get a bucket. You make it a one-possession game. Hold the Hawks scoreless on the ensuing possession, granted you score, then you have a chance to tie or win the game 
at the end, and that's not what happened because after Bogdanovich, after that turnover there at the end of the game, then they got into the mode where they had to foul some guys, and it just upset the whole strategy. But I, I will give the Pacers credit for coming back in the game on uh, against the Hawks because they could have easily shut it down. The third quarter opened with four straight turnovers, and that just kills them. They just didn't play well. So it sounds like I'm bagging on the Pacers, and they lost two games this week that they should have won. To be honest, they've been so much fun to watch this season. Now, I was not as against the Paul George trade as a lot of people were. I'm not saying I'm super prescient and knew that this was going to work out well, for the Pacers. What I didn't like about the trade is that I I did feel by word leaking that George would play his last year of his contract, but would then not return, really did hurt the Pacers' leverage. And that's that's what upset me more about the trade than actually losing Paul George. And I didn't hate George. He was a skilled player. It's just he never really accomplished anything for the Pacers. He wanted the fans to love him and embrace him and see him as Reggie Miller, but You never did anything to really earn that. But he's a highly skilled player. Good two-way player, good defender, rangy, can shoot lights out, and sometimes just get on fire. And the Pacers have sort of tried to build their franchise around him. And then it sort of became apparent that Paul George, as your featured centerpiece, is only going to take you so far. I was relieved when they traded him, just because if the guy didn't want to be there then just get rid of him. And I was excited to have Victor Oladipo here back in Indiana. The guy played in Bloomington. He went from this just kind of athletic guy to a skilled basketball player during his time in Bloomington, worked himself into a first-round pick. I always thought Victor could be a pretty good pro, and I'm glad that Kevin Pritchard agreed. Victor Oladipo has been a revelation this season. One of the top players in the league. He's an all-star. And it's not like he's the only guy they got in the trade either. DeMontis Sabonis is fantastic. Everything that Miles Turner doesn't do or that people complain about Miles Turner not able to do, DeMontis Sabonis does. They're complementary players. Because while Miles Turner isn't going to bang down low with anybody. He is going to block a lot of shots. Sabonis, on the other hand, is going to bang you. He's going to hurt you. He's going to get hurt and take punishment, but he's not blocking anybody's shots. He's not going to be a consistent outside shooter, whereas Turner's a good, pretty good jump shooter. And then Turner just needs to get a little more skilled in his post game. And you got to remember, the guy's still pretty young. But so Sabonis and... He bangs around pretty good with the other guys underneath. It just really do enjoy watching the Pacers because they're out there playing for each other. They're rooting for each other. They really seem to be enjoying the moment that they have. I mean, who knows how accurate it is and, and who was involved, but to hear a story of six players from a team coming to their GM at the trade deadline and saying, hey, man, don't make a deal, don't trade anybody away because we believe in ourselves and we're going to get to the playoffs. You cannot trade that type of chemistry. I'd also like to talk about Lance Stevenson. You kind of wonder how Lance's career would have shaken out if he hadn't decided to go to Charlotte when Indiana was offering him more money and then he just sort of was a, a vagabond 
for a few seasons, then he came back last year, the Pacers wouldn't have made the playoffs without Lance Stevenson last year. He came in, and he instantly galvanized that team. And you can see during home games how much Pacers fans appreciate the effort that they get from Lance Stevenson every night. He's been great off the bench. Sometimes he's close to a triple-double. He'll rebound. He'll defend. He will bull his way to the basket. He doesn't have the best jump shot in the world, but somehow it seems like Lance hits that shot when you need it. I mean, they lost against the Hawks, but Lance was instrumental in that comeback. He hit a big three-pointer. He made some great passes. It's just a joy to watch Lance Stevenson play for the Pacers because you can tell he appreciates being back here in Indy. And he appreciates the fans, and the fans appreciate him. And I don't know, and I mean, I I think it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that Lance doesn't work anywhere else. But he works here in Indianapolis. He works with the Pacers. He tries the patience of Nate McMillan and the entire coaching staff. But Lance plays, and he plays hard, and fans appreciate that, and they're happy to have him back. So, I like the makeup of the team. I'm glad Kevin Pritchard decided not to make any changes at the trade deadline. I don't expect the Pacers to do a lot in the playoffs. I do think they're going to get there. And I also wouldn't be surprised if they won an opening round series and pushed another team in the second round. Let's be honest. They're going to go as far as Victor Oladipo can take them. Now, one thing to look forward to here for the Pacers is Darren Carlson will be coming back soon. Soonish. I'm not sure when, but it should be some point here in the next couple weeks. They've been serviceable with Corey Joseph and Lance Stevenson playing point. Joe Young has given them some very good minutes. You know, Joe Young, who would get in in the last 20 seconds of a game only if the Pacers were trailing or ahead by 20 points last season. They've been getting some great minutes from Joe Young, but they need Collison in there. I remember last offseason, you know, they they traded George, and then their their quote-unquote big offseason move was to sign Darren Collison, and you're thinking, Darren Collison's your big offseason move? Honestly, nothing about the Pacers makes any sense if you think about it from an analytical standpoint, but they've got good chemistry. They play hard. They play together. And they've won a lot more games than anybody thought they should. Kevin Pritchard should be an NBA Executive of the Year. Nate McMillan should be a candidate for Coach of the Year. Providing that they go ahead and they kind of get off the schneid here with their couple of bad losses and, and recover and don't go into a tailspin. Which is always possible. We could see that happen. I just really hope not. But if they get Collison back in the lineup, they get him back up to speed then suddenly this is a team that has a lot of depth and a lot of ways to hurt you. Now let's move on to my beloved Indianapolis Colts. They had a coach, and then they didn't have a coach, and now they actually do have a coach. Listen, I didn't like the Josh McDaniels hire in the first place. Part of it's sort of that ingrown hatred of the New England Patriots and that you don't want someone in their bloodline sullying your own. McDaniels has not had any success outside the friendly, warm embrace of Bill Belichick 
and the New England Patriots organization. He was a disaster as a head coach at Denver, and then when he was the offensive coordinator with the Rams, they were one of the worst offenses in the league. And this is from a guy who is supposed to be an offensive genius. Now, I realize it's only one season and everything, and the Rams are terrible that year, but if this is the guy that's supposed to be such an offensive mastermind, they should be doing better than near the bottom of the league in offense. He goes back, he gets under Brady and Belichick, and Gronkowski, and they're great again. And a lot of that's Tom Brady. I hate to say it, but a lot of it's Tom Brady, and a lot of it's scheme, too. If you will say this, as bad as they were in Denver, and as bad as McDaniel's offense was with the Rams, they are so good. He knows how to scheme teams so well, and he gets the most out of the personnel that he has. I mean, every year it seems like New England has this no-name running back who will just destroy you. Really, other than Randy Moss and I suppose Wes Welker, they don't really have had, they haven't had these marquee receivers, you know, no Marvin Harrisons or Reggie Waynes or anyone like that. So you've got to give them credit for that. But at the same time, McDaniels has had zero success outside that New England system. I was willing to give the guy a chance simply because I'm a Colts fan and he's the coach of the team and you kind of have to give him the benefit of the doubt. You kind of have to try to warm up to him, even if you don't like him. But I I still can't believe the series of events that occurred the week that he decided he wasn't going to take the job. I mean, the Colts put it out on their website. They put it out on Twitter. They had scheduled a press conference, and they were going to introduce Josh McDaniels as their new coach. And then all of a sudden, Josh McDaniels isn't coming to Indianapolis. He probably realizes, like me, that he's done nothing outside the confines of the New England Patriots and got scared and decided to stay. I don't think he got scared, really, but I think they probably made some assurances as far as the direction of the franchise and where it was heading, and McDaniels was going to be a piece of that, and if you've got it so good in New England, why would you want to leave? And all they do is win there, too, except in the Super Bowl this past time in which they didn't win and it was glorious so that meant the Colts had to scramble to find a coach and if you got a scramble and you pick Frank Reich I think you've done okay it's interesting to me that Frank Reich wasn't on the Colts radar before any of this happened now some of that might be because Reich had told his agent while they were in the Super Bowl and in the playoffs I don't want any distractions I'm the offensive coordinator of the football team we've got to play New England I've got a backup quarterback that we're supposed to try to win this game with. I don't want to be bothered with interviews and entertaining coaching offers. And that must have been why you didn't really hear Frank Reich's name, not just in connection with the Colts job, but really any of the other jobs that were out there. Some people were, some of the organizations probably shied away from him because he was the offensive coordinator on a team whose head coach called the plays. Even if that's the case with Doug Peterson calling the plays, Frank Reich's the guy working on the scheme and designing and working with the quarterbacks. So Frank Reich deserves a ton of credit for what they did in Philadelphia. He was a guy who really wanted Carson Wentz, which some of the other teams in the NFL maybe weren't all that hyped on him, but he got him and he turned him into an MVP caliber quarterback. I mean, the guy coached Phillip Rivers, he coached with Manning, and he turned Nick Foles into a Super Bowl winning quarterback with a brilliant game plan that was executed to perfection in the Super Bowl. 
So maybe it's a good thing that Frank Reich didn't want anybody to approach him about a coaching job because maybe he'd already have been signed away from somewhere. But in addition to the fact that he was coordinating one of the league's best offenses and one that beat a New England team that's very difficult to beat in the postseason, it's strange that he wasn't on the Colts' radar, especially given the fact that he got his coaching start His professional coaching experience started with the Indianapolis Colts. He was a member of the Jim Caldwell and the Tony Dungy staffs. And he worked with Manning and Jim Sorge and the emergency quarterback, Pat McAfee, the punter. And it just somehow got lost in the shuffle because Josh McDaniels was the bell of the ball. He was the most desirable head coach out there. And I think Chris Ballard made up his mind that that's the guy they needed to get their franchise back on track. Reich was not a name mentioned with the Colts job. He may have been in their long list of candidates, but he wasn't on the short list. They wanted McDaniels. You heard about maybe Mike Vrabel, maybe Matt Patricia. These are all guys on that Patriots coaching tree. They didn't get any of them, as it turned out, because McDaniels got cold feet about leaving New England and having to stand on Indianapolis on his own. And I don't know if you saw the news conference with Chris Ballard after McDaniels decided he didn't want to be with the Colts, and you could just sort of hear and feel this restrained anger every time Chris Ballard opened his mouth. I don't think he appreciated that. I don't think he liked how that went down. The organization put all their chips onto the table on this guy, and then he just walked away from it. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the owner. It's embarrassing for the organization. It's embarrassing for the fans. And it's embarrassing for McDaniels. No surprise he's not an indie this week for the NFL scouting combine. So I, I was never a big fan of the McDaniels hire. But again, I was willing to give him a chance because he was going to be the coach of the team that I follow in the NFL, and I love the Colts. I watch the game almost every week. And back in a previous life, when I blogged about sports, I blogged about every single Colts game. But I think Reich's a good fit for Indy. He's good with quarterbacks. He's worked with Peyton. He's worked with Phillip Rivers. He helped mold Nick Foles into a Super Bowl-winning quarterback and made Carson Wentz into an MVP-caliber guy for the Eagles. So I think this is going to be good for Andrew Luck, because people consider Reich to be kind of a quarterback whisperer. Now, it it stinks for Luck because he's going to have to learn a new offensive system again, which he keeps having to do, but I think it'll work out well for him. Reich's a good ambassador for the team, and I think he's a savvy football guy. While he's never been necessarily a head coach, I think he's going to surround himself with plenty of good people and things are going to work out well for him. I think this is a good hire for Chris Ballard and I guess we'll find out here, you know, once the the season starts and we'll see and hopefully his game management is better than Chuck Pagano's because as much as I liked Pagano personally and it seemed the players loved him and I know Jim Irsay had a great fondness for him, the Colts game management under Pagano was disgraceful. They lost a lot of leads with a bad team this year where they had a lead in the second half and they couldn't hold on to it. And a lot of that came down to very stale play calling, predictability, let's run Frank Gore for 3.5 yards and try to get a first down and then we'll punt when we don't get the first down and then our defense is going to break down and then our offense can't climb back into the game. That happened a ton with the Colts last year. They lost a lot of leads in the second half because of poor adjustments, and the inability to shake things up. And I don't think you're going to get that with Frank Reich because this guy's been a quarterback in the league. He knows how, he'll knows he know how to adjust. He'll know what the offensive flow is going to be, and I think he'll have a better 
handle on things. And I, I hope that Pagano lands somewhere as a defensive coordinator and is able to coach a really good defense because he was not able to do that in Indianapolis. I know he wasn't the coordinator, but they hired him. He's supposed to be a defensive guy. We're going to have this dynamic defense. We're going to have these corners who are going to press guys, and we're going to really dominate the line of scrimmage, and we're going to be dominant on defense and give a lot of different looks and a lot of different schemes, and it never really worked here in Indianapolis. We never got anything really close to that Baltimore Ravens defense that he was famous for coaching. The Colts are, without a doubt, a team in the midst of a rebuild. They have zero pass rush. Their offensive line is, you could call it dicey. You could call it a mess. They've never been able to figure that out since they got Andrew Luck. And also, speaking of Mr. Luck, it's a big question mark as to what we're going to get from him. Apparently, he's throwing weighted balls now, but not footballs, and he's regaining the strength in his shoulder. And I've got to admit, I was totally duped by the organization last year. I thought that Luck... Yes, he had the surgery in January. It took him longer to recover maybe than he thought. But by training camp, he wouldn't necessarily be ready for training camp, but be be back out there. And by maybe the third, fourth, fifth week of the season, he'd be back in the mix. I kept thinking, he's close. He's close. He's close. He's coming back. There's no way the Colts are going to let him miss the whole season. And then Andrew Luck missed the whole season. And I think it also caught the Colts unawares because... You don't just trade for Jacoby Brissett right before the season and then name him your starting quarterback because you think that's a good idea. And Brissett's a young guy, and I think he's going to be a solid backup, and I hope with an offseason with the team that he's playing for and in a training camp for the team he's playing for, that instead of having to pick everything up on the fly, he'll be a little bit more comfortable to start the season and will be available and play well when the Colts need him. I've heard some people say that they should trade Jacoby Brissett, and honestly, you can't do that until you know what you've got from Andrew Luck health-wise. He doesn't think he's going to need another surgery. The Colts don't seem to think he's going to need another surgery, but man, when he was throwing in November, and then he felt pain in his shoulder, and they shut him down, and he went on IR, it was one of the worst feelings you'll ever have as a fan. Your star quarterback, your $140 million guy, shut down for the year, not playing at all, team's 4-12, and team's terrible, and they're not going anywhere, and they didn't. And the Colts have some other issues to address as well. They've got lots of issues to address. And first, I want to talk about something that just happened the other day. They said they weren't going to re-sign Frank Gore. I will say, Frank Gore didn't play a whole lot of his career with the Colts. He spent the majority of it with the 49ers. He played three seasons in Indianapolis. And in those three seasons, he became one of my all-time favorite Colts because that guy was just a gamer. He was tough, hard-nosed, did whatever the team asked of him. And I felt bad that they brought him in and they brought in they messed around with Andre Johnson and they made these big free agency signings and they said that we're going to be a Super Bowl contender this year and then they're not and they haven't made the playoffs in any of the seasons that Frank Gore has been with the team yes I'm sad to see Frank Gore go because for those three seasons he played for Indy he was a joy to watch professional tough a veteran presence that that team really needed, and probably still needs. On the other hand, he's getting up there in age. The Colts, unless they defy the odds, probably aren't going to be a great football team or even a good football team this year. It's all dependent upon luck 
and what they do with free agency and the draft and whether those things pan out. But in all likelihood, the Colts aren't going to be very good. And I would hate for Frank Gore to spend another year or two with this franchise that has disappointed him only to continue to not go to the playoffs and he'll keep running and not really get anywhere with this franchise. So as much as I hate to see him go, I think I'm hoping that he can catch on with a team that has a future this season. Somebody who's in a win-now mode, make-the-playoffs-now mode, that could use a veteran presence like Frank Gore. He's, he's a workhorse. I mean, his legs still look fresh to me. But you can use him in an offense and have success with him. So I'll miss Frank Gore, and I hope he finds a good place to play next season because there are a few more NFL records that guy can go for that I think he can make, and he should be able to do it with a team that has a realistic chance of making the playoffs, which, again, so many things up in the air for the Colts, but I don't think that's in the cards for the next season. But again, you know, the Pacers were going to be sub-500 this year and not have a chance at even an eighth seed. So you never know how these things are going to shake out. In the draft, of course, the Colts have the third pick, and it's going to be interesting to see what they decide to do with it. From all indications, the kid from NC State, Bradley Chubb, is the game changer, the best pure edge rusher that's out there. There's really not a whole lot out there from the defensive end and outside rush positions available. Chubb's the best of them, and it's really not close between who's two or three, and then there's a big drop-up after that. So any more edge rushers are so valuable in the NFL, you're not going to be able to get one in free agency without either paying a whole lot, or you're not going to be able to get them because teams are going to franchise tag them. You just can't get them. And the teams that have guys that are young are locking them up to long contracts and not letting them hit the free agency market. The draft is the best place to pick up one of these guys, and they appears to be a pretty good one in Bradley Chubb. I'm not a guy who breaks down game film or has watched a lot of tape, but from my understanding, this guy is really, really good and could be a top pick if the other teams there at the top of the draft order didn't need quarterbacks. There's also some thought that the Colts might make a play at Saquon Barkley, the excellent dynamic running back from Penn State, but I just don't see it. Barkley would be a good pick. I don't think anybody would be upset with Barkley because he's one of those guys who can change the game. At least we think he can. We don't know. We haven't seen him do it on the pro level, but these guys in the draft, we've never seen any of them do it on the pro level. That's the whole reason you're drafting them. There's risk involved. But Barkley, he's skilled. He can do everything. He's a do-everything back, three-down back, can catch, can run, can do whatever you need him to do. And he's superbly athletic, supremely skilled. I don't think there's any problem with Saquon Barkley. But if you're the Colts, and you're looking at it, and you have the third pick, and your real need is an outside pass rusher, and the outside pass rusher class isn't great, then you have to go with the outside pass rusher. You've got to go with Chubb and let somebody else take Barkley. And the reason is because you can get a good back in the third or fourth round. There are enough quality backs out there. You can get a guy. He's not going to be Saquon Barkley, but the running backs that you're going to find in the later rounds are going to be better at their position than the edge rushers are that are going to be in later rounds, if that makes any sense. It makes more sense to pick Chubb 
because the guys that are after Chubb aren't going to help your team that much because that group is a little more limited. Whereas with Barkley, yes, you miss him, you pass on him, you're going to miss a great talent, but you do have guys who are highly skilled in the later parts of the draft at running back that'll fit your team. And so that's why I think the Colts have to go with Chubb. And there is, of course, a third option. And it's one the New England Patriots do all the time, although they never find themselves in the third position in the draft. And that's to trade down. Somebody wants Barkley or somebody wants Chubb or there's a quarterback who didn't get picked 1-2 that one of those other teams wants to make sure they get. They call up Chris Ballard. They say, hey, Chris, we'll give you a couple draft picks and we'll we'll exchange first-round picks and we'll throw in a couple more uh, picks in the draft and the Colts end up with several draft picks out of that. And for a team with a lot of holes, from offensive line to a lot of uncertainty at wide receiver, the linebacking core, the secondary, I mean, the Colts, the Colts have a lot of holes, don't, don't let me fool you. That could be a tempting offer as well. It's just that risk-reward calculation that Chris Ballard has to do of, is Bradley Chubb worth giving up these other draft picks, or is he too valuable to us as a team? And who knows? Maybe in the Colts draft, as they're going through and looking at tape and doing their evaluations, maybe Bradley Chubb's not as impressive to them as he appears to be through the rest of the football world. See how he does at the Combine. They'll get a first-hand look at him, and they have to say, is this the guy that we want, and is he worth giving up these extra draft picks? Would we rather have Chubb, or would we rather have the draft picks, or would we rather have Barkley? And those are kind of the the different scenarios that the Colts have when it comes to the draft. They haven't had a good outside pass rusher since Robert Mathis. They were relying on that guy in his 30s to provide their pass rush because they didn't have anybody else. And yeah, Eric Walden had some nice seasons for the Colts, but he was never the dominant pest pass rusher that Robert Mathis was. And even even after Dwight Freeney left, Robert Mathis still terrorized quarterbacks. He was that good. And the Colts got a little bit too reliant on him. And they haven't had a good pass rusher in the pipeline since. So that's that's why I think they need to get this guy. Get a good edge rusher. Because that, that was, of the Colts' myriad issues, the lack of any discernible, consistent pass rush was just the worst for them. They just couldn't do it. They could not sack the quarterback to save their lives. They couldn't get a rush when they really needed it, in a situation where they desperately needed it, they just couldn't get the pressure on, and that led to a lot of problems last season. That's why they're 4-12. and That's why they're the third pick in the draft. So really, honestly, the team's outlook really depends on Andrew Luck and his health and Frank Reich's ability to coach and his staff coming together and the Colts resembling an NFL team once more. I think... Even though they've got a lot of money to spend in free agency, they may go and get one guy that they think's really good who can help them. But I, I don't think they're going to go on the spending spree. This tendency to overpay for over-the-hill players, your Andre Johnsons, your Trent Coles, this stuff that went on under Ryan Grixon, thank goodness that's over. I have a lot of confidence in Chris Ballard, and until he proves otherwise... I'll believe in them. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's edition of the Matt Adams Podcast. You can hassle me on Twitter and tell me how I'm all wrong about any of this at Statomatty, S-T-A-T-O-M-A-T-T-Y, at Statomatty. You can send me an email, matt at mattadamswriter.com, 
or find me on my off-neglected home on the internet, mattadamswriter.com. Maybe one day I'll blog. But hey, I just talked to you for a long time, so why blog when you can listen? Thanks for listening, and I promise next week's show won't be about sports, and I would be remiss if I didn't congratulate the U.S. men's curling team for their great success in the Olympics. I can't believe that happened. I still can't. They got five points with a double takeout in the eighth end, and they beat a Swedish team that was a lot better than they were. But hey, congratulations to John Schuster and the other guys. See you next time.